Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f*** do you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f***ing Put that in. I don't... So the Tribe drops its third straight on this trip. Six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past. I'm talking about the history. I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball. And from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe that is he sucks. I don't want to hear to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business that was ever put out in the hundred years at the present time. Sell the team. Yes, good Saturday morning to you right here on the MTR Radio Network. Of course, this is the Past Ball Show brought to you by JohnPLE.com. A great weekend for Major League Baseball as we get ready for the 2013 Hall of Fame induction ceremony. And most people following the game are like, why even having it? Does this even exist right now? I mean, the writers, the Baseball Writers Association of America neglected to elect one player that was eligible this year for the Hall of Fame. And what ends up happening, of course, is nobody's being brought in, but that doesn't mean that the Veterans Committee is not going to elect anybody. And we do have three new members of the Hall of Fame this weekend. They're all deceased. And uh, I'm going to start out by telling you a little bit about them and their place in baseball history. And I think the Veterans Committee did a good job this year. One guy that they neglected, which you know wasn't their turn to, was Gil Hodges, and we could talk forever and a day about why Gil Hodges is not in the Hall of Fame, where he obviously belongs. But that's for another day. Obviously, we're talking about you know the the rotation that Major League Baseball has with the Veterans Committee and people that are eligible. You have the uh, the old timers. You have the pre-integration, you have the post-integration, and then the modern times. And they, they went they went out for for the old timers, the guys, the the pioneers, the ones that have been around, you know, for over a hundred years and were revolutionary in the beginning of the game of baseball. And I think they made three very good choices, starting with the Colonel Jacob Rupert, who of course was the the, the Yankees owner that brought the team to prominence. And we talk about 27 World Series championships. You talk about the greatest, most successful sports franchise in the history of professional sports. And that, of course, is the New York Yankees. And that had to start from somewhere. You know, it was something that just didn't happen overnight. And for those of you who know, at the beginning of the century, the New York Highlanders, who eventually became the New York Yankees, started in 1901 and were a very bad team for a long time in the American League. And you you watch this team through the beginning of the the 20th century, and it just wasn't looking good for a while until Jacob Rupert purchased the team with a partner in 1915 and decided to put all his assets and make sure that this team had everything it possibly could to be a successful and good baseball franchise. And the New York Yankees of the 1920s and 1930s, and eventually in the 1940s, 
all had to do with what Jacob Rupert did. And he went out there and he was willing to spend money. He was willing to purchase and develop and bring in the best and most talented players. And obviously made some wise trades along the way. Of course, one that you can't have a conversation about this without mentioning is the trade that he made with, mixed with the Red Sox for Babe Ruth, which ends up spiraling this thing in a positive direction. But with, with guys like Lou Gehrig and Tony Lazari and Bill Dickey, they end up winning some World Series championships. And you know the Yankees, who were nothing until Rupert came there in 1915, end up winning the AL pennant in 1921 and 1922, and their first World Series in 1923, and then another AL pennant in 1926, and then winning the World Series again in 1927 and 1928. And that is all attributed to what the Colonel, Jacob Rupert, did as the owner, bringing in the best players and making this team one of the top teams in Major League Baseball. And obviously the Yankees continue to succeed in the 30s. He makes a very shrewd move when he when he uh, names Joe McCarthy the manager in, in the early part of the 1930s, something that was uh, was, was was disliked and uh, not approved of by the great Babe Ruth. And, of course, you talk about everything that Babe Ruth did to revolutionize baseball, to bring the home run element in there, and to be you know part of what he, is, he ended up being. He obviously disapproved of a guy who didn't play. Obviously a minor league manager, a guy who had success in the minor leagues, and Joe McCarthy was, was a guy that Babe Ruth said, listen, I should be managing. Look at what I've done. And obviously you looked at the time where there was a lot of player managers in Major League Baseball, and a lot of the best players were also managers. And you know we could, talk, we could spiral this into another conversation about Babe Ruth and why he didn't get a chance to manage. But... The bottom line is that Joe McCarthy got the chance. And with Joe McCarthy at the helm, the Yankees have probably the greatest success in the history of any team in Major League Baseball. And they win all those World Series championships. Of course, 32, 36, 37, 38, 39, 41, 43. And then, uh, you know, in the post-McCarthy years with Bucky Harris in 47 and, of course, the Casey Stengel years after. But, you know, Rupert brought in Joe McCarthy, and he made the moves for all these different players, and if it wasn't for Jacob Rupert, perhaps the Yankees never have the success that they have, you know, through all these years, and obviously a lot of other people can be attributed to it, the players, managers, owners, general managers, uh, scouts, to bring in all these great players, you know, somebody scouted Joe DiMaggio, somebody scouted Mickey Mantle, and it's allowed this team to continue to have the success from the early part of the 1920s until really the uh, mid part of the 1960s. And uh, Jacob Rupert, who obviously uh, you know has, has been long gone, he passed away in 1939 while the Yankees were running off a string of four straight World Series championships, uh, is going into the Hall of Fame. And I think it's a great thing for Major League Baseball to honor a guy like this. Moving forward, does this mean with Jacob Rupert in the Hall of Fame, should you consider that maybe it's time for the boss, George Steinbrenner, to get his place in baseball's Hall of Fame? And, of course, we know the boss passed away a couple of years ago. And, you know, obviously he was a very integral part of the New York Yankees having success in the 70s. And then again towards the latter part of the 90s. 
And you look at it, the guy who really didn't want to do anything else but win. And, you know, some people have some disputes with it. Some people may say that uh, George Steinbrenner was out of baseball. He was suspended for the How- Howie Spira thing, you know, with Dave Winfield, the whole thing. And that's when the team was able to build through their farm system. And guys like Stick Michael were able to put things together and build a team that ends up becoming the latter 90s parts of the New York, uh, of the New York Yankees and the World Series championship teams that they were. But George Steinbrenner kind of comes in the same type of mold of a Jacob Rupert. And, you know, if you put these two guys next to each other, you would realize that they'd have a lot in common. You know, Jacob Rupert was a guy that, you know, just didn't care about, you know, in regards to money, he had it. So what he wanted to do with, you know, once he became the owner of the New York Yankees, he wanted to put that together and become a winning franchise. And he, he was able to do that over the series of years with money. And, you know, it didn't work out all the time. I mean, he became owner in 1915. You looked at some Yankee teams around that time. They weren't very good until really the early part of the 20s, until Babe Ruth came in there, until, you know, Wally Pipp established himself and, of course, was replaced by the great Lou Gehrig. And away they went. But George Steinbrenner went through the same thing. A lot of free agents. And obviously you're looking at two different times. You know, you, you, you bought the best players in the early part of the 1900s and the 1920s and the 1930s. You know, you scouted them out while they were playing and you signed them. There was no MLB draft. You know, as, as time goes on, you know, the reserve clause is eliminated. That's where we get free agency. And that's what George Steinbrenner thrived in. You know, bringing in guys like Catfish Hunter and Reggie Jackson. And many, many, many other players, some of them didn't work out, but some of them did. And both of them had that same kind of heart and passion for winning that it's impossible to, you know, match up with if you're any other owner in a sport. And if anybody, you know, of a favorite team would want, it would be to have an owner like George Steinbrenner or an owner like Jacob Rupert who cares that much about winning that's going to do anything they can to put the best players on the field and not worry about the financial implications of making a big signing. I mean, I mean, $125,000 in 1920 was a huge sum of money. And people did not, people did not look at that as, as a minor transaction. $125,000 that he spent to get Babe Ruth was a fortune at the time. And he still went out there and did it. Obviously, you know, $125,000 in Major League Baseball, you know, considering what the players make now, means absolutely nothing. But back then, it was a huge deal. And it just showed the commitment that he had to winning. And he put it together. And, you know, obviously, you needed good players. You needed a good front office. And he had that. And he, he backed away when he needed to. He didn't make the, per, the personnel decisions, but was very influential on that team becoming a success that it ends up being. So, you know, as a guy that's in the Hall of Fame, like I said, you want to tweet at me at John underscore Pielli, let me know. What do you think? Do you think Jacob Rupert being in the Hall of Fame could open the door for the boss, George Steinbrenner, to follow him? Maybe within the next couple of years, maybe three years from now, maybe six years from now, maybe next year. You know, will he get consideration? Or is there that much of a black mark that he left in regards to the perception from other people that maybe nobody wants him in? Maybe the other owners don't want him in. Maybe he affected baseball writers in a wrong way that they don't want him in. 
But the, the second part I doubt a little bit. Because I think a lot of the writers, while they have their things that they disliked about the boss, there's more positive things as far as his rank in the history of Major League Baseball and where he should be remembered. He's going to be remembered as a winner. He's going to be remembered as one of the better owners of his time. You look at guys like Charlie Finley and Bill Veck, who all did different things, but weren't known to be the winner that George Steinbrenner was. So I do want to, you know, I'll mention, you know, any any tweet at me, I'll get right back to you. Let me know what you think. Jacob Rupert, does that open the door for George Steinbrenner? Obviously, two other people are going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, both posthumously, both have passed away several, several years ago in the 1930s. And in addition to Colonel Jacob Rupert, former Yankees owner, there's a former player, Deacon White. And Deacon White was a guy that played really a long time ago. And you, know, you talk about where he ranks as far as a, as, as a top player. I don't think he was an absolute star. But one thing that really held him back was the time period that he played in. He played from 1871 to 1890, and he had very good stats in spite of the fact that he didn't play anywhere near what would be considered a full season now. Some of the teams that he played with played in an average of about 60 to 80 games. And he, he obviously he was one of the top players. He led the league in RBIs, uh, batting average, hits, triples, you know, all different types of stats. He was one of the top players in the old, uh, the old National Association before it became the National League later on in the 18, uh, 1870s. And, you know, his numbers, they, they rank out. And the unfortunate thing is that you can't, you can't take his stats and extrapolate them over the course of what would have been a 154-game season, of course, what now is a 162-game season. So you look at a guy that had over 2,000 hits. He had a share of doubles and triples. Obviously, this was before the dead ball era. So, you know, home runs were so hard to come by. And you look at a guy that was one of the top players over that period of time, from about 1871 to 1890, which is when he played. And he played on a bunch of interesting teams, teams that won pennants, teams that you know competed for the, for the World Series championship before there was really a World Series. And he played for teams like the Boston Red Stockings, the Chicago White Stockings, the Cincinnati Reds, Buffalo Bisons, Detroit Wolverines, and Pittsburgh Alleghenies. He played in the Players League in 1890 with a team that was also called the Buffalo Bisons. But 2,067 career hits, 988 RBIs, both extremely respectable stats based on the fact that he didn't play in anywhere near a full season. And it wasn't that he was hurt. You know, his one, one season, you know, in 1877, the Boston Red Stockings were league champions. And you know what the record was? 42-18. and 18. They played 60 games that season. So how can you fairly assess a player that is playing every possible game Six, in his 60-game season as opposed to what, you know, from within 20 and 30 and, of course, longer than that, ends up being a situation where, you know, you're playing double the amount or two and a half times the amount of games. Obviously, if you extrapolate his numbers over the course of that, you have a guy that probably could put up all-time Hall of Fame type numbers. And I'm glad to see that he gets honored here. And, of course, he passed away in um, later on in the 1939 year. And remember, Jacob Rupert died January 13th in uh, 1939. Uh, Deacon White passed away on July 9th of the same year. 
on to the other Hall of Famer, which probably is the most known, really, of the three. You talk about Rupert and Rupert as being an executive, you know, a guy that, you know, you may know as an owner. Owners don't really get that much discussion or credit or credence or credibility or anything in regards to Major League Baseball, especially somebody that was an owner really some, somewhere over, you know, around 100 years ago. But, you know, you look at Deacon White, and, of course, Deacon White played in a time where, you know, baseball, you didn't even know baseball was going to exist that long after that. This was just a fun game that they were out there playing that you didn't know if it was going to be around for the next several years. And it turns out to be is obviously a big success story. But Hank O'Day was an umpire, and Hank O'Day was an umpire really around the turn of the, 19th, uh, the 20th century. Uh, he, he was a player before that. He was a manager. And then he became an umpire full-time. He stopped to be, to be a manager again for the 1914 Reds and the 1916 Cubs. And he ends, he ends up kind of going back and forth, but he ends up sticking with umpiring after 1916 and ends up uh, being out there till around 1935. His one crowning moment where a lot of fans will be able to uh, at least refer to is a huge moment in, in uh, Major League Baseball history. Obviously, 1908. You got the Cubs playing the Giants towards the end of the season in a tight pennant race. Big game, last game of the season. And it looks like the New York Giants are about to win themselves a pennant. They end up getting a walk-off hit. It looks like the Giants are going to the World Series to face, of course, what will be the Detroit Tigers of that season, of the American League. But Hank O'Day, the umpire, ends up making a very controversial call, which turns out to be right based on the, the scoring in the rule books. But Fred Merkel is a guy on first base, runners at first and second, base hit, the runner from second scores, and the game is over. Merkel, all he has to do is touch second, and that's it. But he fails to touch second. In celebration, he stops in between first and second, ends up running in, and uh, Johnny Evers, who of course is known from the Tinkers to Evers to Chance and the poem, the whole thing, was the Chicago Cubs shortstop. He ends up calling for the ball, steps on second, and Hank O'Day is the one that calls him out. But that's not all he was known for. A very good umpire for 35 years in Major League Baseball. And, you know, was, was second only to the great Bill Clem in regards to the history of being a, you know, as long of an umpire. He, he also umpired 10 World Series. Yeah, you look at a guy that was really considered one of the best in regards to fairness, knowledge of the game, and courage to make the right call. And obviously the Fred Merkel game uh, makes really the stand of all stands, the confidence and the balls and the audacity to go out there and make a call like that. Remember, this is, this is the polo grounds. We weren't playing at Wrigley Field. We weren't playing in Chicago at this point. This was, this, this was at the polo grounds when the Giants were just about to be crowned champions of the National League. They're about to win the pennant. And what ends up happening? He has the balls to go out there and make the right call at a time where there was no security. There was nobody that was going to hold the group of fans from going out there and trying to kill him. But he had the, the, the audacity to go out there and make the right call, not just in that one instance, but was known for a very firm knowledge of the rule book and not being afraid or intimidated based on the surroundings or the players or the coaches or managers of, of the, the influenced teams to go out there and make the right call. 
And there's a guy that's going to, of course, posthumously be inducted into the Hall of Fame along with Jacob Rupert, along with Deacon White. And, of course, you know, you look at the fact that he passed away in 1935, so none, none, of, the three player, none of the three people inducted into the Hall of Fame this year were even alive past 1939. But if you look back in the past, the Major League Baseball, you look at the fact that, you know, there, there's anywhere from about two to three to five, sometimes even more people inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame when you count the players brought in by the Baseball Writers Association of America and, of course, the personalities, everybody that's involved, uh, whether it's an umpire, whether it's an owner, whether it's past players from, you know, way back in the time or recent players that were brought back up by the Veterans Committee. And, you know, it usually fluctuates between about two, three, seven, you know, somewhere, somewhere in that area in regards to uh, inductions each year in the Baseball Hall of Fame. And this year you got three. And a lot of people don't know that because they're so hell-bent on what happened this year with the, with the uh, baseball writers failing to elect the single member. And remember, you had legitimate candidates, but a lot of them were blocked by, by the backlash in regards to the baseball writers and baseball fans. And obviously the fans didn't have a say in this, but the fans' opinion is certainly right there along with the writers this past season. That they didn't want anybody inducted that could be traced at all to the use of steroids and performance-enhancing drugs. And they made that stand. So once they made that stand and we had all the discussions of, hey, you know, was this player clean? Was this player not clean? Uh, you know, there was no evidence of this guy ever using steroids, but they weren't elected anyway. Once all the smoke and fog clears, you have the fact that no players were elected by the Baseball Writers Association of America, but the Veterans Committee did elect three, three members this year. And they are, of course, Hank O'Day, Jacob Rupert, and Deacon White. And you look at what, en what ends up happening you got you had three people inducted last year, two the year before, and the previous three years you had three people inducted each year. So it's right on target with the amount of people that are are added to the Hall of Fame and the festivities. And obviously, it doesn't get the uh, the, the public um, the the public uh, acknowledgement because it doesn't involve players elected by the Baseball's Writer Association of America, or even the Veterans Committee bringing in maybe a guy like Gil Hodges or somebody that, that, that certainly uh, would have deserved the opportunity to be part of the Baseball Hall of Fame and certainly may be. But listen, this is John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Speaking of the Hall of Fame, when I get back from break, I'm going to play an interview I recorded with Longtime Pittsburgh Pirates outfielder, first baseman Al Oliver. And of course, Al ended up playing for the Texas Rangers, the Montreal Expos, the Philadelphia Phillies, the San Francisco Giants, the, uh, sorry, the Los Angeles Dodgers, and the Toronto Blue Jays over the course of a very good career 2,743 career hits, 529 career doubles, a 301 career average, and a guy that certainly should have been inducted in the Hall of Fame already. And, you know, based on, you know, where he was at the stage where he ended up retiring from the game of baseball, certainly belongs in the Hall of Fame. Here's a guy that could have played another two, three more seasons if it wasn't for collusion. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take our first break of the day. Be back with Al Oliver after this.
This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to MTRRadio.com, fantastic. Que bueno! But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. Yes. Uh, 
know, you end up on the, you know, with, you know, going into things in 1971, you're part of that great outfield. You're playing center field. You got Willie Stargell on left. You got Roberto Clemente, you know, to the other side of you. How, how did it feel being part of that outfield? And I'll tell you, you know, you look statistically, um, that, you know, that would be one of the more productive outfielders for those couple years that, that really there's been in the game of baseball. Series ago. 
you know, back to the 1973 season, yeah, that, that had to be a tough season to play. I mean, you know, from opening day, like you mentioned, you know, you don't even remember if, you know, you won or lost that game. It obviously had an impact on the team. I mean, the team was still very talented. Yeah, you had you, Stargell. You still had some very good players on that team. Um, was it a foregone conclusion that, you know, you, you, felt, you felt or maybe the team fell deep down that maybe it couldn't be at its best after suffering such a big loss like you did like that? We still felt, although he was gone, we still felt that we could win our division and still go back to a world championship. Um, that's the kind of that we had. Uh, we were very fortunate uh, in 
uh, you know, as, as far as being a top player, which you were around that time, and you know, obviously earlier you you were a top player, but you were surrounded probably by better talent around you. Uh, tell us a little bit about making that transition and just becoming the the elite star player that you were in those seasons with Texas and Montreal.
played, you know, those four seasons being an everyday player. And obviously that, that would have done, you know, wonders for your numbers, which, you know, you, you know, 2,743 hits, you know, the 529 doubles, all, all phenomenal numbers. But, you know, just imagine what you could have finished off with had he gotten a chance to play every day those couple of years. Right. And, um, in my mind, and I give an opportunity in my mind with the cost of, of our defense and, and cost of our defense has uh, improved. You know, uh, all of it got better. And the bottom line was that uh, I, I didn't get the opportunity. Uh, it wasn't because uh, I'm out of gas, because I still had a lot of gas in the tank. But it was something that they thought the folks would do.
uh, I look forward to seeing you in Baseball's Hall of Fame where you absolutely belong. Listen, Al, I want to thank you for your time. A lot of great stuff we just went over. And, you know, let's stay in touch, man. And, uh, you know, wish you the best of luck with everything you're doing with the motivational speaking. And, you know, can't wait to get the book to come out. I appreciate that.